Okay, so we are where we left off, which is Perik uh, Lamidalid in the first uh, book of Moran Nebuchim. We uh, got up to Hasibah Revi'it, the fourth reason. And these are the reasons that the Rambam is giving for why a person shouldn't start, uh, shouldn't start out by studying the area of metaphysics and Masim Rekava and uh, why it shouldn't be... Uh, you know, what the concerns are about presenting it to the public, presenting it to the uh, common person. In other words, why not just everyone can start with these? And so he, he, he gave us three reasons so far. One was the difficulty of the subject. One was the, uh, the immaturity of the intellect, that it takes quite a long time to develop uh, the capacity to think. The third, and the one that he emphasizes the most, I think, uh, is the necessity of preliminary studies that most people are not willing to uh, engage in. And in fact, not only are they not willing to engage in them, but in order to, uh, if you take a person who wants to be perceived as an authority in the area of religion or in the area of knowledge of Torah, they're going to want to belittle those subjects that they don't know so as to make it seem that they're unnecessary or even contrary uh, to, uh, to the path of truth. And that's what he says here. He says that even... This is the end of the paragraph. Uh, he means the people who are famous for wisdom. And he doesn't mean that they actually have wisdom. He means the people who are thought to have wisdom. The people who are famous because people think that they have wisdom. In other words, if you can't have something, you uh, belittle it. If you don't have something, you say that it, it's not necessary anyway. If you take somebody who's a, 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 a great expert in a certain field, um, the claim that they don't know something, or if they're, if they're perceived, they should say, as a great expert in a certain field, but then you say that they don't know something which is necessary in order to be an expert uh, in their field, that would be an, an, an insult to them. They would rather say that that's not really necessary and probably belittle the people that waste their time. In, uh, in fact, yeah, he says, uh, they'll even, they even claim that, oh, the people who are studying those fields are, uh, are causing themselves damage. Like a person who's a mystic or something like that might say that, oh, by studying science, you're actually damaging your uh, relationship with God because you're taking it out of the realm of emunah and you're moving away from the, uh, the path of uh, Kabbalah or whatever they think is the proper path. And, uh, and thereby uh, they'll actually denigrate the people who are investing their time in really uh, seeking knowledge of those areas because they'll say that they are actually holding those people back from the truth instead of seeing that, the, that it's facilitating their uh, attainment of the truth. The, you know, that's the, uh, but the true Mikubalim would never say something like that, like the Ramban would never say anything like that, nor would the Ramchal ever say something like that because they always talk about the importance of uh, scientific knowledge and in the realm of, uh, of, you know, of knowledge of God. They just want it to be uh, uh, complemented by and completed by the knowledge of the Kabbalah. But that's, that's the, just like a person who is uh, an expert in uh, some field of... Uh, a person could be a, uh, let's say, an expert in science, in some area of science, in physics or something like that. Uh, it takes a lot of mathematics, let's say, to get to that point of... Uh, they would never say that learning math is a waste of time even though their field is not math and they think that math is a tool 
an instrument to some higher understanding, like the Rambam actually says in several places in the Mar'an Abuchim, that just learning math problems for their own sake doesn't really lead you to any knowledge of God, unlike what the Platonists maybe thought, that, uh, that studying math was the highest form of, uh, of knowledge. He would say, no, that's an instrument to the higher forms of knowledge, but he wouldn't belittle a person who's, who, who's mastering the field of, uh, of mathematics because it's necessary in order, to be a, uh, in order to have a complete understanding of physics, even though it's not the end of the road of the of the field, so you know, in the same way, somebody who's studying uh, metaphysics, whether it be from a kabbalistic or a non kabbalistic uh, framework, should recognize that there's a value in understanding the creation for sure. Yeah, what did you want to say? I saw you. Um, actually, I'll, I'll wait on my questions a little bit later. Oh, okay. Okay, let it percolate in there. Okay, so now we. Uh, so we're up to see about what we eat, but that's an important one because he spends a lot spends a lot of time on that, and he uh, and he examines it from a variety of angles. One is, of course, the laziness angle. In other words, most people don't want to invest their time. They want simple answers, just like people will pick up a book called like Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People. I'm not trashing that book. There is like a book like that, but you know, I'm just saying they'll pick up a really simple sounding book that deals with some uh, profound topic and uh, expect it to answer all of their questions rather than taking the challenging uh, uh, journey of really trying to explore all of the necessary preliminary uh, uh, you know, uh, areas of, of study that would be, you know, that could actually bring you to a better understanding of that. They, they don't want to go through that. They just want a quick answer. Or like Richard Feynman has like a book this thin called The Meaning of It All or something like that. You know, like it's, it's very appealing to have simple answers. Uh, or if you talk to somebody like Richard Dawkins, who seems, seems to actually think he understands religious thought and philosophy, but anybody who's either a philosopher or a theologian thinks he doesn't have any idea what he's talking about at all. Not that he doesn't have legitimate questions or that he's not an intelligent person. He's obviously a highly intelligent person, but he hasn't actually gone through the process of studying all of the uh, preliminary disciplines and the core disciplines that are necessary to really understand what he's talking about in that field of study, in the field of philosophy or in the field of talking about religion. And so it's a, uh, just like we've all encountered people, the simplest, explana- uh, simplest example, we've all encountered people who have a very limited, even relative to our level, which is a modest level, um, a limited knowledge of Judaism, but they have very strong opinions about it. You know, we've all encountered, there's many, many people like that, oh, this is definitely what Judaism says, or this is definitely what's wrong with Judaism, or what's wrong with the rabbis is this, or what's wrong with the, uh, with, with the religion is that, or the religion teaches you this or that, and they really don't know anything about uh, the religion except the smattering, what they learned in Talmud Torah, maybe at the best, uh, or what they heard in some drashot from some rabbis. They really don't know much at all. Uh, they haven't gone through like the whole process of study to be uh, someone who could have an opinion on that subject. And... Uh, and so that's the, um, you know, that, that's in the same way the Rambam is saying these people want to put themselves up as uh, authority figures. So they have to, uh, they have to, uh, first of all, they didn't have the, the, they didn't have the discipline to reach or, or a person who wants to have the answers, but they don't have the discipline to reach the, uh, uh, to reach the level of understanding. So it's a, it's a detriment to them because actually it just becomes a source of either 
misunderstanding that they wind up with the wrong under, the wrong uh, uh, ideas, or it ends up being a frustration to them, or or even worse is the last case where they decide to set up that ignorance is actually superior to knowledge. In order to uh, maintain their position of uh, authority, they have to argue that the, the less you know, that a person who studied the halachot of Arba'at Minim and tells you that your etrog is uh, pasul or kasher is inferior to a person who takes the etrog, puts it on their head like this and says that Ruach HaKodesh tells me that this etrog is pasul, you know, or something like that. Uh, so they, they will convince people that this, the latter person is, is superior to the former person. Okay, so, what's the fourth reason? Now, in the Kapach one, it's on Nun Gimel, it's on page 53. Now, this is where the Rambam could be accused of uh, some level of uh, elitism, not in the usual way that he is, because normally he's, he's, people just get upset because he thinks knowledge is superior to ignorance and that's very offensive to that. But the, uh, you know, and I guess, you know, that's, uh, that's what I find. But he, here he's saying that there's actually a uh, biological determinant of it. That a person has to have excellent character in order to have excellent uh, intellectual ca- uh, capacity. In other words, that character and intellect are linked with each other, which is another thing that people don't like to believe today. They like to believe that a professor, let's say, who is a total jerk and you know a total egotist and uh, self-absorbed uh, or pleasure-seeking uh, person, could be an authority on very found on very fundamental ideas, and that we should take their judgment in those areas to be. Uh, a valid judgment or a compelling judgment when in reality uh, their judgment is impaired because their character is flawed and the reality of the matter is that uh, a person has biases but the bias, the, what a midah is basically, what, what flawed midot are, it's not just that the guy is not a nice guy or the person likes to drink or they like women. It's not a it's not a. Uh, it's not just a detail of the personality. The um, it, it means that their uh, their rationality is not what's in control of their decision making. I mean, their their judgment is not conditioned by their intellect. Which is, in other words, what is what is the person with the ideal midot in the Rambam? It's the person who's in the middle. We've talked about this before, right? Well, he always talks about the middle path. Now, the middle path doesn't mean 50% of the time you should be angry and 50% of the time you should be calm or that 50% of the time you should be happy and 50% of the time you should be sad. That's not the middle. What the middle means, really, in the Rambam's thought, if you read Hilchot Deot carefully, you'll see, and I know we've learned it before, but I'm just reviewing it with you because it's relevant to here. What the middle path means is that the person's response to events is not based on a pre-programmed tendency within them, it's based upon the objective reality and demands of the situation. That's really what the Rambam is talking about when he talks about the Shvila Zahav, when they talk about the golden mean or the, you know, the golden path of, uh, of Midot, which, by the way, even though the Rambam is, uh, a lot of the people say the Rambam got that from Aristotle, it's not really true. A lot of the uh, Rishonim use the same concept, even the ones who are not uh, uh, rationalists, you know, not part of the Rambam school, I should say, um, use that same concept that basically midot is about moderation, but moderation isn't quantitative. Moderation is qualitative. It means that a person is supposed to look 
at the situation and, resol- and that's why he talks about a person has different tendencies, a tendency to react with anger, a tendency to react with indifference, a tendency to react with compassion or a tendency to react with cruelty, a tendency to react with uh, pursuing a, uh, a desired object, a tendency to be cold and not have desire. These are tendencies, all of which are bad. Why are they bad? Not because, uh, uh, not because you need a balance of 50-50. They're bad because they mean that what's determining your response to situations in your life is not the situation, it's something within you. In other words, it means you're not objective. That's why he says the people who are in the middle path, what does he say they are called? The chachamim. Right? He says, this is the path of the Chachamim. Why is it a path of Chachamim? It's a path of Chachamim because a wise person is responding to the objective reality and doesn't have a pre-programmed response based on habit or based on their biological, you know, their biological nature or based upon the social pressure or any other factor other than um, you know, uh, outside of the demands of that particular circumstance. Meaning to say that if the situation warrants compassion, they will give compassion. And if the situation warrants strict, strictness and a little bit of indifference, that's what they will give. And if it, resp- if it requires a harsh response, that's what they'll give. And it, if it requires a, um, an acceptance of, uh, uh, of, of a pleasure, they will take it. And if it requires an abstaining from a pleasure, they will take that. In other words, whatever it is, they don't have a pre-programmed answer to the, uh, uh, you know, to uh, how they behave. That's really what midot, midot is about. Midot is about getting out of our system the natural tendency to, uh, to react in a way that satisfies some psychological need or some social need or is just a function of habit, but actually being a function of what's around us and what's outside of us. You know, they give the example of Shaul Melech as a person who just was merciful to everyone. He just, uh, you know, even where it, wasn't, uh, where it wasn't warranted. And then in the end, he was cruel even when it wasn't warranted. In other words, the point is that, you know, that's, that's the famous... Uh, Agadah about Shaul, a person who is uh, somebody who is mirachem in a situation where it's not warranted will eventually uh, be uh, cruel in a situation where it's not warranted. And that's what happened with uh, Shaul in the beginning versus Shaul in Nov, where he was cruel to the people with uh, no justification. The idea is he, what, he didn't have the proper midot. In other words, once you exit the framework of proper midot and your emotions take over, you're no longer processing necessarily what's happening in the external world. You're being de- your behavior is being determined by things in the internal world. That's what the idea of midot. So if that's how your judgment is affected in matters related to your personal conduct. So kalvachomer, ben benoshal kalvachomer, as we say, all the more so is it going to be that your, dis- your judgment in matters that are about values or in matters that are about the ultimate meaning of things or of life are going to be determined also by factors that are not necessarily objective and not necessarily rational, but are uh, rooted within yourself, what you want to be the, the case, what you wish to be the truth will end up coloring uh, what is actually the truth. And, you know, we, we've talked about before the book um, God and the Astronomers by uh, Jastrow, where he talked, basically the book is about that. I mean, uh, it, it, the book is essentially about that issue that uh, scientists in their rush to construct an understanding of the world that reflects what they would like it to be uh, made certain very fundamental errors that were only later corrected uh, by happenstance, you know, because somebody noticed uh, errors in, in calculations and equations, uh, because the person, even Einstein, somebody as great as Einstein, was so uh, driven by his uh, blind spot that he wanted to exclude the possibility of an act of creation that he uh, made basic mathematical errors. 
Um, and so that just shows that that's obviously in a case that's like what we call the Freudian slip in that situation, meaning that he didn't even realize that he was making that uh, determination because he didn't even recognize his own error. But certainly it's true that a person will say, I find this reasoning appealing. I don't know why, but this reasoning, it just makes sense. It's appealing to me and, and it, it, it fits because it fits together with their worldview in the same way that we see that in the book uh, I had mentioned, um, Mind and Cosmos, which actually is an excellent book. Um, it's an excellent book for many reasons. One reason is because of the basic content of the book, which is actually quite fascinating um, and compelling. But another aspect of the book, which is really remarkable, is that it essentially shows that um, uh, it, it's an example, it's a meta-speaking example, meaning the author himself says, look, this should really lead me to the conclusion that there's a God, but I don't really want to accept that, so I'm going to conclude that there isn't a God, and I'm going to try to explain everything that I've said up till now without there being a God, even though it doesn't make sense. He's very conscious of the fact that it's problematic what he's saying, but he can't accept the idea of a God, so he has to work around it in... Um, in, uh, you know, in that way. Or you take Darwin. If you read Darwin's uh, autobiography, um, it's actually interesting, but, you know, he, 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 in the end of his life, became an agnostic. He never really became an atheist, but became an agnostic, uh, meaning he, didn't, he wasn't really sure that there was a God. It wasn't for the reason that people think. It wasn't because of uh, evolution, actually, so much. It was because he came to, he might have thought that prior to the, to evolution, the discoveries of evolution, one could have argued, one couldn't have argued against the existence of God, so he had no choice. But in the autobiography, he says that the reason why was because of all the suffering in the world, you know? There was too much suffering in the world, and he, he, therefore he couldn't believe that God would do that, and that, you know, or he had trouble believing it, and he struggled with whether there was God or not. But again, that's going with your emotions, like what you think the world should look like if there is a God, what you think it shouldn't look like. And I had mentioned one time this guy, David Conway, I've mentioned a few times, who wrote this book, uh, The Rediscovery of Wisdom, which is basically, um, it's by a British philosopher who says that... um, who says that we have to restore the original purpose of philosophical thinking, which was knowledge of God. It's a very unusual book. And uh, in that book, he talks, he criticizes David Hume, who was one of the early continental philosophers who uh, threw a lot, you know, poked a lot of holes in the traditional philosophical understanding of previous generations. And uh, it basically accused him of that kind of reasoning. Like, well, in a, in a universe with a God, I think the world should look like this, or I think the world should look like that. And therefore, since it doesn't look like that, I conclude that there isn't a God or that there might not be. Uh, but that's not really valid reasoning. It's going by your emotions of how you feel things should be, not really based on a rational inquiry. If you um, look at what David Melech says, David Melech says, Kir beotecha, David Amelech's conclusion is that you're right, uh, in a, it, that actually in a universe with a God, uh, human beings should have no attention from God whatsoever. The exact opposite of what all of these people think, that if, that if, if God is there, then everything in our life should be beautiful. David Amelech says, no, if, uh, uh, looking at the creation, human beings are so insignificant, really we shouldn't get anything. It's a, it's a miracle that we do. Right, so it's the exact opposite of the way that they think. So you see the difference between, or, and that's similar to what Einstein basically said. That when you see how vast the universe is, how can you expect any divine providence for a tiny creatures, human beings? That's a much more humble, let's say, 
view of the world than a view that if that God should be catering to our every whim if he exists, you know. But in any case, the uh, so he said so that I'm just trying to point this out because midot of a person affect judgment, judge meaning because their tendencies of how to react, but either physically, emotionally, or intellectually to something to a problem, their tendencies within us. And to the extent that our activity is determined by inner tendencies or social tendencies um, or habits, we're not really attending to the reality in front of us or the objective uh, facts in front of us. We're, we're in, we are responding to something within ourselves that, that's, that's, that's making us tick. So, that, so since we see that our judgment is uh, is shaped by is influenced when it comes to petty matters by our inner uh, drives or our inner tendencies habits. Um, so it's certainly true about major issues like what should my values be? What is right and wrong? Uh, if it affects what I decide is right and wrong in a particular situation, imagine how it affects what I think is right or wrong. In a, ultimately, imagine how it affects what I believe, want to believe is true or false without even realizing it. The truths that I want to believe are the truths that are going to uh, fit with my worldview best and be the most reassuring. Look at what happened to Eov. Look at what happened to Elisha ben Avuya. Look at what happened to Spinoza. Look at what happened to, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, what's his name? Stephen Hawking. All of these people who, uh, you know, created a vision of the world that simply reflected how they wanted it to be. Um, so unfortunate, but, re- but real. So therefore, he says that, We now understand. That's what I want you to understand. That's why it's impossible for a person with bad midot to come to true understanding. It's impossible. They will not, because it will always, they will, there will always be, consciously or unconsciously, factors affecting their judgment in these areas they don't even realize. They won't come to truth. Adam nochum yushav. There has to be a person who's really settled. What does he mean by settled? He means what I was saying before. Settled means that you're not reactionary. Settled means that you're, you're responding to the reality that is before you and not to something else. So here we get to where he's a little bit... Um, uh, Determine, he's sort of a uh, showing a little de- biological determinism here. And this is what uh, the guy who wrote the bell curve, remember that guy uh, uh, who claimed that, you know, intelligence was uh, genetic and basically different races have different uh, IQs. And, um, and he, he still now when he goes to speak on university campuses, there are protests, they chased him, he had to run away, he was like physically assaulted a couple of years ago before COVID. Um, he was like... Uh, that, that guy who wrote the bell curve. In any case, the point is, this type of idea is not well, well uh, received nowadays, that there's some biological factors that limit intelligence. But he's saying to you, look, a person, there are certain people that have biological nature that they'll never be able to become perfected. Not that they can't work on it, but they won't achieve the highest level. Right? Right? A person could be you know, like the uh, stereotypical hothead, you know, uh, certain cultures maybe are associated with that type of thing. But like, it's, uh, you know, it's not necessarily cultural, it's individual, but it can be associated with groups. He's saying it could be genetic. The person just has a temper and they could work on it, but they might never vanquish it. 
חזקי הבנייה ואיברי הזרע, מרבים לו להיות זרע. הנה זה רחוק שיהיה פרוש. A person who has a very high libido, we would call it today, he says that, the, the, you know, he's talking about the biological organs being very heated up, their idea, you know, but the point is that they have a, they have a high libido, okay? So that person will be hard for him to be a parush, be hard for him to separate from the physical desires enough to be able to uh, have this knowledge. A person is like very active. He's over, he has ADHD, right? That's what he's talking about. Somebody is overactive. That person, right? His composition is messed up, okay? He's being brutally honest. In other words, he's saying they're genetic factors, we would call it today, that make a person less capable of success in the area of perfection. Right? We can't bring them. In other words, we're not going to be able to um, consider teaching them such high-level things. We're not going to be able to do it. Okay? They don't have the discipline. You're not going to find... Or lo timatzeir, actually, because he says the targum, the miluli is teorae. Lo timatzeir ba'em shnumot e'olam. That uh, you'll never find perfection among people with such character. Vatibul ba'em im matzavim ke'ele sechlut muchletet. Trying to work on it is a uh, is stupidity. Mina mitapel, from whoever's trying to do it. In other words, if you try to educate them beyond their ability, you're being a fool. This isn't mathematics or study of medicine. Not everybody is cut out for it. In other words, basically it's saying you can teach a hothead to be a doctor, but they're not going to be able to be a metaphysician. You can teach them to be a math teacher. That's why we all had really mean math teachers probably at some point who screamed and yelled or maybe really mean biology teachers. They might have been the top of their field in uh, biology or in math, but they wouldn't be met- genuine metaphysicians because it requires a perfection of the character. Okay. Uh, uh, he says, because you need to prepare... And in, and in preparing, you need to have proper character so you can have the discipline to study all the preliminaries. Because it says that a person who is, uh, you know, that you have to, the person has to achieve the height of, uh, of perfection um, and not have any defect because the person who is the defective person is to'avat Hashem, is uh, abomination, but ve'tisharim sodo, but with those who are straight, that wasn't a sexual orientation term back then, those who are on the straight path um, have the secret of God, meaning those are the people who can have that knowledge. Straight, meaning yishrei lev, means the person who has the proper midot. That's why the pasuk in the beginning of Sefer Amada is, meshoch right? That, uh, that Hashem will uh, extend, that yishrei lev, that uh, Hashem is, uh, gives his, uh, his knowledge to uh, Yishrei Lev, the people who are straight of heart, being the people who are following the straight path in terms of midot, right? That's why young people cannot really learn this stuff. He says that in the, when they're in the middle of maturing and growing, and they have all those hormones, we would call it today, you know, basically that's what he's describing. The, the hormones raised, raging in the teenager or the young adult make it impossible for them to study these areas. So until such time, 
as uh, as that fire of uh, uh, that is uh, you know raging within them subsides, they're not going to be able to study these areas. They have to have calm and quiet. And their hearts have to become humble. We know that young adults and teenagers tend to have big egos as well. As well as, uh, you know, they think they're invincible. They think that they are unstoppable. They think that, you know, they have all kinds of beliefs about their own chances for success that are uh, unreasonable and exaggerated. Right? They can only, when they achieve humility, be able to um, be able to gain this knowledge. That's a pasuk from Yishayahu. Right, that Hashem is very exalted, and the one who is of broken or low spirit is the one that can relate to God. Right, so what does it mean? He emphasizes the anava here. Now we know from Moshe Rabbeinu that that is the core trait, that meaning of all the traits of Moshe Rabbeinu that are uh, discussed in the Torah, identified in the Torah as his strengths or his perfection, the anava is the highest one. Why anava of all things? What is the humility? Uh, why not that he was compassionate? Why not that he was balchesed? Why not that he was devoted, dedicated, disciplined? There's so many other things that you could say about Moshe Rabbeinu um, that are good qualities. Why anava? Because anava means that the person has the perspective of reality. Anava doesn't mean that the person is an idiot and, they, and that Moshe Rabbeinu thought that he was uh, inferior to the Bnei Israel. He, he, he didn't think that... Uh, that the guy, that Joe on the street was a greater Talmud Chacham than he was because he was so humble. Humility doesn't mean that you are a fool, right? That's why, uh, you know, Thomas Paine, who uh, was aptly named, you know, he wrote a, uh, he wrote a book called Common Sense. Uh, you know, he's like one of these, uh, this is talking about like during colonial times or whatever, uh, and uh, basically criticizing the Bible and everything. Yeah, it's a famous, It's one of those early books that kind of like shows all these contradictions in the Bible and how can you believe it and blah, 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 blah. And one of the things that he famously wrote was that the Pasuk, He said, either Moshe Rabbeinu didn't write it or it isn't true. Right? Because if Moshe Rabbeinu wrote it, how could he write about himself? He's the most humble man. That's, that's bragging. So obviously he's not humble. So therefore, how could Moshe Rabbeinu have written it? Forget about the fact that we assume that Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't writing his own thoughts and he was writing, you know, what the Devar Hashem that Hashem told him to write. Besides that, the point is that, he's, that uh, it isn't unbe, you know, it isn't improper for Moshe Rabbeinu to comment that he reached a level of anava because he's not saying it as bragging. It's just a matter of the truth. Anava doesn't mean that the person is... Uh, unaware of their level of knowledge relative to the knowledge of other people in the world, it doesn't mean that he's unaware of the level of perfection he achieved. It means that he recognizes his own insignificance from the objective perspective of God's creation and the reality of God's existence. He realizes how small he is. He knows that he realizes how small he is. He realizes that he sees himself as smaller than most people see themselves. Because most people's frame of reference is very, very, you know, constricted. It's very limited. And in there, like they have that saying, they have that saying in English, he's a big fish in a small pond. 
right? Meaning if you're looking at yourself in the context of your friends, family, and immediate circle, your local, uh, your local circle, so then what comes out is that you feel that you are uh, you're very big. But if you look at it from the perspective of David HaMelech, you know, when I look at the heavens and I see all the work of God, I say, what, what am I? I'm nothing. Right? That saying that you really have that awareness and you have that uh, perspective is not lying. It's not bragging. There's a, the, the Rambam brings in, uh, you know, there's one, uh, it's in Shmona Prakim, I'm pretty sure it's in Shmona Prakim, where he talks about the guy that, um, that reached the level of perfection in humility. When he talks about the level of humility, that Hasid Echad was on a boat and he was sitting on a boat and some like homeless guy comes and like pees on him, you know? And he said, that moment I realized I achieved the height of perfection. It didn't even bother me that the guy did that. I didn't even get upset, right? So, uh, so like the Rambam brings that as an example of ultimate humility. Like, okay, whatever, the guy's a homeless guy, I don't care, right? We're not talking about like uh, Diogenes type of not caring. That's a totally different thing. We're talking about humility. So the idea is that, um, that, this, uh, that reaching the level of humility is not something that it doesn't, if you say you've achieved the level of feeling very small, that's not bragging, Okay. So it's, uh, but, but the point is that humility means a person who has the perspective of the ultimate reality. They judge themselves through the lens of the ultimate reality. And when you look at yourself through the lens of the ultimate reality, you look microscopic. You look, you look less than microscopic. And therefore we prefer a lot of times to use a different kind of tool or a different kind of lens to look at ourselves. One in which we seem more significant. Um, and uh, and that's what humility means. So that's why humility is really at the core of all character traits because we said that character traits, really good character, a good midot, is responding to the objective reality, not to an inner compulsion or a societal compulsion, whatever. What, usually the societal ones are absorbed into the inner, the same thing really. Like the Rambam says, there's different sources from which the nitiyot come, for this tendencies come. But the idea is that if you're responding to the objective reality, in, then the ultimate example of being attuned with the objective reality is anava, is being humble, because recognizing how small you are in the face of a reality far superior and far grander than anything you can imagine, that places a person in the right frame of mind to be able to learn and understand. And like he's saying, when a person's in the grip of passions, they are at the center, right? And you could see that. If you want to look at an extreme example of what, mid, what bad midot are as opposed to good midot, then bad midah is a person who loses their temper in an extreme way because that person completely is disconnected from any objective reality. They're not thinking about the... Uh, the outcome of the things that they're saying. They're not thinking about the implications. They're not thinking about irreversible consequences of the things they're saying and doing when they've flown into a rage. They're not thinking about it. Or a person who is, let's say, overtaken by a feeling of compassion for someone. Maybe they're not really truly being compassionate and caring in what they're doing. They're not thinking about the person's situation, but they're doing something without really thinking through uh, you know, the next steps. That A person who gets lost in that is not really thinking objectively anymore. But the best example is temper. That's why the Rambam says that the losing of temper, anger is the worst, right? The two worst midot are anger and arrogance because they put the person at the center of reality and they basically seal the person off from any, uh, uh, you know, from any awareness 
of an objective, you know, any objective reality outside of themselves. Their psychological reality becomes all that there is in that moment. And we all know that when we've lost our temper, we forget about everything. We forget about the consequences. We forget about the impact that we're going to have. And we just let it go. And that's the, uh, and oftentimes, unfortunately, people make life-changing and very bad uh, choices during a rage um, as a result of that. So that's why the Rambam says the worst midah is anger and the best midah is anava because the person who has anava is the person who's at the opposite extreme of that is the person who is the most in touch with the reality and where they really stand uh, in, in the face of the objective reality. And that's where the person can learn from. But the same is true with passion. Think about a person, when uh, those of you have, who have experienced being in love, hopefully at some point, you know, um, hopefully you still love your, uh, you know, your family or your uh, significant others, but, you, uh, but the experience of being in love kind of like takes over your world and you think about it all the time and you, you're, 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 you're not thinking about anything else or it's largely, you're not thinking as objectively about things as, as you normally would uh, when you're in that state of passion and that state of love. And he talks about that too. That's the hormones raging in the teenagers. The hormones, you know, the anger, the hormones raging. These are things that uh, blind us to any uh, reality greater than ourselves. And we know that from experience. Anyone who's been in that, uh, in that situation knows that. So, the, um, so he's saying, therefore, in order to really have proper knowledge, you have to be in a state of where you can be objective, where you can be realistic, where you can be engaged with, where, where you can suspend the, the tendencies within you to judge things in a manner that fits with what you want them to be, uh, which is exactly what we can't do. Like I remember when I had my first child, I remember I thought that, oh, when I turned on the radio, the news would be talking about it or something like that. You know, you get so lost in your own world. It's so exciting what's going on in your life. Or when you're in love, like everything becomes insignificant. You know, all the practical things become unimportant because you're caught up in this love situation. Then afterwards, you're like, what was I thinking? You know, all those things were super important, but you didn't want to think about them at the time. They, they became insignificant in your world. Um, it was taken over by those feelings. Now, that's why he quotes the Pasuk here, that it says, Now, the, usually when people read Pasukim like that in Tehilim, they think that what it means is when you're very sad and heartbroken, Hashem is going to answer you, right? Um, that... Uh, uh, that uh, or that when a person's broken of spirit, Hashem is going to help them, meaning that they've been broken of spirit, and that Hashem revives the spirit of those who are broken, that it's talking about psychologically, but the Rambam is taking it to mean spiritually or intellectually, meaning that these people who are broken of spirit, meaning that they've broken their own egos and they've become open, because when you're an anav, when you're in a state of anava, that means you're open to the objective reality. That means that you're able to receive so those people are the ones who are able to gain knowledge in the ultimate sense. And he says, therefore, uh, the, the, so when they talked about in Masachet Chagiga, giving over you have to give it over just the chapter headings, meaning the assumption in the area of metaphysics is that if you're capable of learning this area, you're an independent study. I'm, not, I'm only going to give you I'm only going to give you hints and a little bit of direction and you have to figure it out on your own from the hints. He says, they said there that you can only give it to the meaning somebody of the highest caliber, caliber of knowledge. Only the person whose heart is doeg bekirbo, who is uh, is worried within him, meaning to say that the uh, that the person is someone who kavana bakach. And what does it mean? Shiflut awach va'anava bishuvadat tamuflag nosaf al chokma. It has to have a lowliness of spirit. 
and humility and yeshuva that settlement of the mind. You see how he puts those two things together? That the mind is settled and that the person is humble are connected to each other, right? In addition to the knowledge that he has, he has to have that character of humility because humility means that the objective reality is the determinant of how you see things, not your own desire for the way things should be and not placing your own tendencies or your own inclinations um, in the driver's seat. He says that uh, they said you shouldn't give the secrets of Torah except over to a yo'etz. Now these are all quoted from a pasuk in Yishayahu. What these exactly mean, the Mepharshim will argue about and discuss. The Gemara tries to explain and the Rambam is giving his interpretation of what the Gemara means basically. You could have a person who's, a, who's quick at picking things up, but he doesn't have depth to his knowledge, right? But what does it mean, a yo'etz? It means somebody with political knowledge. What do we call political knowledge? Practical knowledge, right? There are certain people that they have a tremendous intuition for practical things. Practical knowledge, it's called the Sechel Ma'asi, they call it in the, in the uh, Rambam's, you know, philosophical terms. The Sechel Ma'asi, practical knowledge. The Ramchal talks about it a lot in Der Chochmah also, gaining the facility of practical knowledge. Okay, but he can't even understand basic ideas. In other words, philosophical ideas, abstract ideas, they don't, he's not able to grasp them, but he's a yo'et, he's a great advisor. He has a great sense. There are many people like that, many leaders like that. Politically, they could be super savvy, super Super smart. They understand the situation. They understand the psychology of people. They understand the practicalities of life. They're very pragmatic, and they know. Look, you can have a mechanic that's uh, you know who looks at a car. He listens to the car and he figures out what's wrong with it from listening to the car. He can uh, you know he has such an intuition about a practical area. You can have people like that in politics. They have such an intuition. Uh, in that area, in practical matters, but they don't have in philosophical matters. I'm sure you've met many people that um, are extremely capable business people, let's say, or extremely capable in the social world. They're extremely attentive to social cues and they're masters at socializing, you know, at social success, at climbing the ladder of social success, practical knowledge. But if you talk to them about anything profound or deep or abstract, like they're lost from the get-go. They have no interest or no ability to grasp those kinds of ideas. They exist, such people, right? And that's why it says, Why is this, in, he says, in the hands of the fool, he has the, the price to acquire wisdom, but he doesn't have the heart. In other words, some people just don't have the ability to look beyond the practical for any kind of uh, knowledge. And that's, you know, and the truth is that the Rambam makes a place for those people because he says that those are the people, the mitzvot, the average person can benefit from the practical knowledge of the mitzvot. That's mainly what Mishle is about. Seeing how the practical wisdom of Torah gives you a better life. You might not be a person who understands the ultimate depths of what Shabbat represents, let's say, for example, but you can be a person who benefits from seeing how having the rhythm of life of Shabbat is a good life. It's a better life than being lost in endless melacha. It's a time to reflect. It's a time to pause. It's a time to be with family. It's a time to recalibrate yourself and think about what's really important in life and so on. Uh, a person can relate to that. That's why I've mentioned many times before that tefillah is one, the tefillah, the sidur, is one of the best philosophical texts we have. You know, yismechu b'malchutach shomrei Shabbat v'korei onek. That the person who's, who celebrates Shabbat, 
who, who, uh, who uh, uh, the person who keeps Shabbat and calls it a delight, calls the Shabbat a delight, is rejoicing in the kingdom of God. Right? That's Shomwai Shabbat. I'm the nation that sanctifies Shabbat, they enjoy and benefit from your goodness, Hashem. Meaning, they benefit from the goodness of God, they recognize God, they're not going to get into the philosophical significance of the creation of the universe. But the fact is that they benefit from and gain from the institution of the practical institution of the Shabbat. And that's really, the, so for those people, the practical wisdom of the mitzvot is their realm of uh, uh, where they should focus their perfection. He says there are some people that are able to get to the secrets of things. They have a very clear nature, meaning a very clear thinking. They can get to the, to the inner essence of things. What is nevon lachash? The understanding whisper. What does it mean, nevon lachash? It means a person who can formulate things in a very clear way. Nevon lachash, that's what he's saying. That they can take the nistereya inyanim, secret things, meaning they can take the underlying point and they, you ever see a person who can listen to a long uh, discussion and say, I'll summarize it for you in one sentence. This was the point. Like that, that's a gift. They can access what is the essence of the message, a long uh, thing. They can summarize it in one clear point or one pithy saying or whatever, one aphorism or something like that. Capture a very deep idea or very complex idea very simply. That's another quality. Right? But this person might not have invested time or engaged in the study of the Mada, in the study of the subjects that are related to Masa Borishit and Masa Merkava. And therefore, That's why it says that why is he called Chacham Kharashim? It means that he's so wise that when he speaks, everybody becomes deaf and mute, meaning nobody can say anything because he's so smart and so impressive that they can't say anything. That's, uh, that's why he's called that. But the idea is that In other words, what is really the, what are really the Gemara saying by taking this pasuk as a remez for the person who's able to come to the Yatashem? That you need three things. Practical knowledge, meaning governance of others, but really meaning governance of yourself. The midot he's talking about. He's saying, Having the proper conduct in Midot, number one. Having the ability, having the knowledge, having the knowledge of the air of the disciplines that is necessary to seek knowledge of God in the ultimate level. And having a quality which is zach utfunavi cholatesber, having a clear, pu- clear intellect that you're able to formulate things in a very precise manner and to de- and even to to explain them lomareta inyanim beremes that you would be able to share them with other people in a, in the form of a hint. Vaz moslin lo then they give it to uh, they give you over the sitroito all the secrets of the tovah. Amalei Rabbi Yochanan Rabbi Elazar talig mocham asemer kava. Rabbi Yochanan said to Rabbi Lazar, come and I'll teach you the Masim Merkava. Sounds like a great opportunity. But Amalei Akatilo Kashai said, I'm not old enough yet. What did he mean? He said, I still feel like I'm too young and I have too many hormones raging, basically. I have my, my nature is not settled. I can't understand it. 
See how they also thought that age was important. So how can you just put it out there for everybody, for the common people, if you see that even somebody like Rabbi Elazar said, I'm now worthy of being able to study this area properly. Right? So what we see from here is um, he's saying to you that there are three components. There's the component, and it's really summarized in the Gemara that they learned from the Pasuk in Yeshayahu, that we find in Masechet Chagiga, that you need... Um, Perfection of character, which he calls practical. That's practical. Like if you think about the people who are socially successful, they have a certain discipline to their character as well. Right? He's saying political wisdom, the governance of the self and the governance of others, practical matters, um, social, political, business, and so on. These require a certain discipline. So he's saying, first of all, perfection in that area. And then perfection in the area of mastering the knowledge, but also with an ability to perceive the essence of things with such clarity that one can also pass it on to others. That's a, the question that I was wondering about is, is that a level of understanding or is that a qualification because we want to pass it on to the next generation? In other words, what, whether, or is that both? Because we know that, you know, it's a good measure of do you understand something, whether you can explain it. If somebody says, I know this, but I can't explain it, they don't know it. Right? Meaning if a person can, can ex- cannot explain something, they don't fully grasp it themselves. That's why they can't explain it. Okay? So they always say, if you can explain what you're learning to a third grader, then you really understand it. Should be able to break it down to something simple they can understand. Okay? If you can't do that, so that means that you don't fully understand it. So that's why, you know, um, that's why, for example, according to Halakha, at least according to Shukhan like if you don't speak out Divrei Torah, you don't have to say the Bacham Divrei Torah because it's not fully formulated. It's not, it's not fully formulated until it's spoken. Spoken word means that it's something that is uh, fully crystallized, formulated, a- able to be conveyed to other people. The Grad disagreed with that. He said even thinking about Divrei Torah, you need to say the Bechot Torah first. It's a different thing. But I'm saying the idea is that um, that definitely being able to, that's why it says that the mitzvah in the Torah is actually vishinantam levanecha, to teach it to your children and obviously that presupposes that you learn it yourself, but you learn it to the level that you can pass it on to others. So that's both a measure of your own knowledge and clarity as well as a contribution to the ongoing development of human knowledge and understanding. So basically the Rambam could really mean both of those things, or the Chazal could really mean both of those things. That in order to understand that you have to have a clear enough intellect that you can get to the heart of matters, you don't just master the discipline and have the knowledge under your belt, but you can really get to the heart of matters and perceive the essence of them with great facility. Um, but that also comes with the ability to pass it on to others, which is the interest of, uh, you know, of tradition and transmission of the knowledge to uh, the next uh, generation. That would be also an interest of the Chazal to keep the tradition alive, which is why Rabbi Yochanan would say to Rabbi Elazar, I want to teach it to you so it can stay alive and be continued to the next generation. So that shows you the, uh, the chain of transmission there. But so it could be both. I mean, I assume that uh, there were two factors. There was the factor of the ability to understand and there was the factor of the, uh, of the uh, necessity or the desirability of transmitting the knowledge for, uh, for posterity that determined to whom they would, uh, would give it. But it turns out that it's the same person. In other words, the person who is able to understand it will also, should be the person who is able, the person who is able to understand it best will be the person who is able to convey it best. Because clarity of understanding um, should lead to clarity of communication in the uh, you know, ultimate sense. So it's really, it becomes the same thing. 
which concern was their primary one might not even make a difference. It could be that they knew that they were hitting two birds with one stone by putting in that requirement. So maybe, maybe trying to look at it as two things is a mistake because really one leads to the other. Um, the Moshe Rabbeinu uh, thought that he would, when, like the Ralbag's interpretation of Moshe Rabbeinu, that he w- wasn't able to communicate with people because he didn't have a common experience with them, that his mind was too uh, involved in the Dvarim Shebiru Moshe Olam. He was too much of an abstract thinker. He wouldn't be able to communicate with them. And of course, in the end, he did communicate with them the best of, en- of anybody. So uh, as he did, so Hashem was basically telling him uh, he, would, he would assist him in developing his understanding so that he could have that bridge to the common people. He could put his words in a form that uh, would be accessible to, uh, to everyone. And, uh, and he did gain that ability and uh, the capacity in the end. By the way, just as an aside, mentioned before the idea of the passions uh, being an in, being a deterrent to proper leadership or proper practical wisdom as well as theoretical wisdom, you remember the story of uh, Yehuda and Tamar, of course, in the Torah. Right after it is the story of Yosef with Potiphar's wife, and the Ibn Ezra says there that the reason why the Torah gives the two stories, even though they didn't happen at the same time, they couldn't have for chronological reasons, doesn't work. The reason they're mentioned juxtaposed is to show you. Yosef's discipline and control of his passions as contrasted with Yehuda falling prey to his passions and also making rash decisions, assuming Tamar was a zona, assuming Tamar was this. You, in other words, so the question is, why does it, what is the Ibn Ezra getting at there by pointing out the contrast? And I think the reason is, he's trying to show you why did Yosef succeed so quickly in becoming a leader and in becoming a, a guide to Paro and a guide to Mitzrayim it was because he had that quality of mastery of his passions. That's what made him able to, uh, not that he didn't have flaws. We see that he goes through a process of growth himself. He had certain flaws and ego and things like that that he had to work on. But as he perfected himself, he, further and further, he became an outstanding leader and teacher to people, whereas Yehuda was behind the curve. Of course, eventually he gets there too, and he becomes ultimate. But he was behind the curve because you see that he was still subject to his passions and therefore not uh, able to provide the kind of a leadership and the kind of guidance that would have been expected of him otherwise. So it's interesting, um, you know, uh, indication of that from even from the stories of Breshit, you could see that uh, factor. But the... Um, but that being said, I guess we'll leave the last sibah for next time because we already went an hour. I don't want to keep you guys uh, up so late, and I eventually have to go to Shacharit. Actually, on the, I'm on the other end of the of the uh, of the uh, clock. So, Bezrat uh, Hashem, we should continue next week. Hopefully, we will finish this and get into the next parak. I hope uh, we'll be able to schedule permitting. All right. <laughs>